In November 1964, at the beginning of the United States involvement in the Vietnam War, there was a fighter pilot by the name of Dan Dawson who was shot down somewhere in the dense mountainous jungles of that country. His family was informed that he was missing, but the government couldn't or wouldn't give him any more information. Dan had a uh, brother, Don, who at the time was a commercial boat pilot in Southern California. And Don had a young family and he sold most of his family's possessions to get enough funds to fly to Vietnam and to begin a search for his brother, lost in the jungle, far, far from home. There was a magazine writer from Life magazine who had heard about Don Dawson's mission, and he made his way to Vietnam to report on this family story. And he was able to find him. He was able to find Don Dawson living, um, moving from one small village or hamlet to another deep in the jungle, a good 30, 40 miles from any American military presence. The reporter wrote a story for Life magazine and detailed the primitive and certainly by Western standards, very um, deplorable uh, conditions. Um, there was not only a lot of health risks from disease, from um, problems with sanitation, but of course, this was a war zone. On a daily basis, they were threatened with gunfire and uh, mortar attacks. And they never were sure if the people around them were friends or enemies. In fact, the uh, writer entitled his story, Where Will the Bullet Come From? So the reporter stayed for a few days and he returned home to write his account for the magazine. And he ended his story by asking questions about what could possibly motivate such an obsessive or such a fanatical search by this young man. Was it the young man's own search for adventure? Did he have feelings of guilt? Did he have his own self-destructive death wish? In this account, we're told that the villagers in those little um, settlements in the jungle called Don Dawson. Their name for him was the brother of the pilot, or else, more simply, the brother. Their name for this man suggests to me that those villagers perhaps had a simpler and more accurate explanation for why this American came. And that is that families take care of each other. If a family member would get lost or attacked in the jungle, someone from the family would go search for them. Someone would go out and bring them home. The families in those villages understood that this 
American was not a threat to him. He was a brother who had come to take his brother back home. Now, in the last few weeks, we have been examining actually three parables from Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and uh, most especially that parable that we usually call the prodigal son. But as we have seen, perhaps a better title for this story that Jesus told is the parable of the two lost sons. If we pull back for just a minute, these stories are told in Luke chapter 15, but in Luke chapter 12, we learn that Jesus has begun his journey, in fact, his final earthly journey to Jerusalem. He's begun this final journey to Jerusalem where in a matter of weeks, he will be arrested, tried, and crucified. But he's in this village, and at the beginning of chapter 15, we find him enjoying a meal, but with persons that the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the community would call sinners, would call lowlifes people that certainly were undeserving of attention and respect and certainly not worthy of the um, fellowship and attention of the teaching rabbi. And again, as we've examined this story, it's easy to see that younger brother as lost, as outside of the family of God. He was sinning in a spectacular way. He had rebelled against the father. He had rebelled against the family. He had taken all these family assets and had begun spending them in the prodigal, extravagant way on wine, women, and song. This was an individual who saw himself as his own person, in charge of his own life, free from any restraints. But in Act 1 of this parable, we saw that as he so freely indulged himself, as is often the case, he became enslaved to his own self-destructive desires and appetites and then began to sink into a life of fear and despair. It's a spectacular story, and so perhaps we understand why most often refer to it as the prodigal son. Certainly a story about a person who had lost his way. Last week, though, Pastor Dave was talking about the elder brother. And we saw how the elder brother, the older brother, was maybe just as lost in his own way as was the younger brother. 
after the younger brother had been welcomed into the father's embrace and there was a great celebration underway, we found the older brother bitter, angry, resentful. We find him complaining and objecting to his father that he had always followed the rules but was never rewarded with a party. And that complaint of the older brother really exposed his heart, exposed his true motivation, and which was, my father owes me for my good behavior. He wasn't serving his father. He wasn't doing the things that his father wanted out of his love for the father, but what he felt he would be able to get from his father. He didn't serve his father out of love or joy, but because he feared missing out. And we saw that the, other, the uh, older brother was angry because the father loved this very undeserving brother. He was angry because the father didn't follow the proper rules of reward and punishment. At the end of the story, we see that the older brother was rebelling against the father. We see that this older brother was just as far from the father's loving embrace as the younger brother had been when he had deliberately left home and living life on his own terms had become lost. Of course, um, Jesus intended his listeners to be able to see themselves in this story. Perhaps those sinners, those lowlifes, were able to see themselves as maybe a younger brother type. Perhaps some of the Pharisees and the religious leaders were able to see, am I an older, older brother? But um, these stories are intended for us as well, as that first audience. What do we need to break the shackles of our own lostness. Whether that lostness is like that defiant and sensory-seeking uh, younger brother, or whether it's that place of loneliness and despair that the younger brother later found himself in, or um, do we find ourselves in the role of that older brother, defiant and self-righteous, the question is, how can the heart be changed from fear or from despair or from anger to love and joy and gratitude in the Father's presence? The title of our, our series has been um, The Prodigal God. 
And this is um, um, the same title of a book by Tim Keller. Uh, and and uh, in Tim Keller's book, he suggests that there are three things um, that especially um, we need to take from this story with respect to this issue of how does the heart get changed? What needs, what is necessary for the heart to change? And the first thing that he suggests is that we need God's initiating love. In the case of each of the brothers, we saw the father approaching his child to bring them in, to join him at the banquet before the younger son has a chance to confess. The father, you remember, runs to him. He kisses him. He welcomes him home. It was not the repentance of the son that caused the father to love his son. Instead, it was the other way around. The son recognized the love of the father, which enabled him to repent and, and be reconciled to his father. And notice as well that the father initiates the contact with the older brother. He goes out to the angry and resentful older brother, pleading with him to come and, and join the celebration. Even those moral, religious people need the initiating grace of God. In the face of the older brother's anger and resentment, the father goes to, we might say, argue his case. Argue his case and invite him into the joy and love of the family gathering. So the first thing that is needed is the Father's initiating love. We will never find God unless He seeks us first. And sometimes we might experience the love of God in a dramatic way, like the younger son, where we're overwhelmed with that sense of love and grace. But sometimes it might be more like the um, older brother where God begins to probe us, arguing with us, making his case that perhaps a sense of lostness, a sense of incompleteness, has, has a remedy. There is something that can fill that incompleteness. And that is the love and fellowship of the Father. But a second thing we learn from the parable is that our repentance involves more than just regret for individual sins. You know, we might sometimes think that to get right with God, we have to list our sins and tell God how sorry we are for each of them. And indeed, repentance does involve remorse for those sins. 
But in this story, um, we find that it's more than that. You might remember that the older brother claimed that he never disobeyed the father. And as Jesus tells this story, he does, the father doesn't contradict him. In this story, the apparently moral and rule-following older brother is resisting the entreaties, the love of the father. And at the end of the story, all we know is that he has not yet been reconciled to the father. He hasn't joined the celebration. It would seem that the problem is that it's pride in his good deeds rather than remorse for his bad ones that was keeping the older brother out of fellowship with his father. So what does true repentance entail? I want to suggest this this morning. We have to repent of the sin that is under all other sins. The sin that actually is lurking under our, the pride in our own righteousness. The foundational sin is seeking to be our own Lord and Savior. You might remember in the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment is having no other gods before me. And that is because that's what we do. In one way or the other, we make other things, we make ourselves the Lord of our lives. Repentance means we've put our trust in things other than God and that both our wrongdoing and all the rule following that we do are ways to get around God or to get God under our control so that we can get those things that we want, that we want more than God himself. So three things needed for the lost to become found, for the heart to be able to change from fear, from anger, to love and joy. We need the initiating love of the Father. We need to recognize and repent from seeking to be the Lord of our own lives. And we also need someone that is willing to bear the cost of bringing us back home. We need someone willing to bear the cost of our rebellion against the Father. Last week, uh, Pastor Dave pointed to um, a rhythm in each of the three parables that a sheep was lost, a coin was lost, a son was lost. A sheep was found, a coin was found, a son is found. And when the sheep and the coin and the son were found, there's a celebration. For the lost had been found 
and things have been restored to the way they should be. But last week, Pastor Dave pointed out a significant variation in our story, the third story. And that is, while the shepherd looked for the lost sheep and the woman looked for the lost coin, no one went out to look for the lost brother. In our story today, although we know that the father loves his lost son and is longing for his return home, no one went out to search and bring him home. And we talked a little about um, in that culture, and actually in a lot of cultures, um, the oldest son has a lot of privileges. He inherits the largest portion, or sometimes the whole portion, of the family estate, the family property and assets. But the idea is that he has responsibilities. He's responsible for providing for and protecting the family. He uses those assets to go out and find the lost. But in this story, the elder brother will have none of it. So what has happened in this story is Jesus has placed a, what we might say is a flawed elder brother. He places a flawed elder brother in the story so that we might Imagine that we might yearn for a true elder brother. A true elder brother who, in spite of a loved one's rebellion, who, in spite of a loved one's defiance, would go and seek after that lost loved one, bearing the cost, spending his time, his energy, his resources, risking his life in returning that one back to the father's home. And so, indeed, it turns out that we do have a true elder brother. One that is on the lookout to restore lost souls to the loving care of the father. We've been camped out, as you know, in Luke chapter 15. But as I mentioned earlier, this is part of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. In a few more chapters, we get to chapter 19. And at this point in time, Jesus has arrived in Jericho. And in Jericho, you might remember the story, he seeks out a man named Zacchaeus, a wee little man. Zacchaeus, uh, we do know that he was short. He's described as a short man, but he's described as a tax collector. He's described as a cheat. Zacchaeus is a lost soul, but he is a child beloved by his father. 
Jesus calls out to Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus is restored to grace in his encounter with Jesus. And at the conclusion of that little story, Jesus proclaims that today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And then that memory verse for today. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. From Jericho, Jesus travels up the Jericho road to Jerusalem to observe the Passover there. And certainly to one degree or another, the children of Israel understood the idea of sacrifice as necessary to atone for the people's sin and rebellion. And on the occasion of the observance of Passover, there was an ancient ritual in which an unblemished lamb was sacrificed for the people's sin. In just a matter of weeks after telling this story of the prodigal son in Jerusalem, just a very short distance from the temple where the lambs were sacrificed, there was a hill called Golgotha where Jesus, the Lamb of God, was put to death for our sin. Centuries before, there was a prophet named Isaiah and he had made this kind of enigmatic declaration. This was centuries before Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah was talking about a true elder brother. either as older brothers or younger brothers, we have rebelled against our Father. We have made many things, and most particularly ourselves, more important than our relationship with God. And so it is that we deserve alienation. We deserve estrangement from the Father. This is the choice that we have made to go away from the Father. But what we are offered is mercy. Jesus offers forgiveness. But forgiveness always involves a price. Someone has to pay. And we have an elder brother who was willing to pay the price 
to make the journey how can this be? To make the journey from heaven to earth to die for our sins. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 was reflecting on this mystery when he said, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus laid aside the infinities, the immensities of his divine being, and at the cost of his life, paid the debt for our sins, and purchasing the only place where our hearts can rest. Remember um, earlier in our service, I got to pick one of the hymns, and I picked, and can it be? Remember this verse that we sang? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, he emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free. For, oh my God, it found out me. This is uh, a mystery. This is a wonder. Um, as we are able to know, as our hearts are moved by Jesus' journey from heaven to earth, as our hearts are moved by his sacrifice, by his willing to bear the cost to go out and find the lost, to find me. As we are able to, I'm using the word again, ponder, dwell on, as we're able to be in that place, our hearts can be transformed. Our hearts can be transformed and so we can begin to live as God intended us to with gratitude, with love, with joy, with the peace of God that passes all understanding. Now this morning... Um, We've been using Psalm 111.2 as a transitional, as a, um, as a refrain, as a worship refrain. Remember what that was? It's right there. Let's, let's uh, read this one together again. Great 
are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. This is a great work of the Lord. The true elder brother. Is this one that you can ponder? Is this one that indeed you can take delight in?